Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is The History of Girlhood, and this is episode 11.6, The Clothes Make the Girl. If you are a modern parent... You may well have had the experience of collecting so many baby clothes that your baby grew out of them before she even had a chance to wear them. Really, babies grow so fast, and people are so eager to give you the most adorable things, it can be an overabundance. Historical mothers largely did not have this problem, partly because cloth was expensive, oh so unbelievably expensive, but also because cute baby clothes as we know them were not a concept. What would be the point of all those little flowers or princesses when you are just going to cover it all up with a swaddling blanket? The question of to swaddle or not to swaddle would eventually reach a fever pitch, but for most of human history, there was no question. You just swaddle. For those of you who may be hazy on what that even means, to swaddle is to wrap the baby up tightly in a blanket or in long strips of cloth so that only their cherubic little face pokes out. It looks uber-ultra-uncomfortable to us because it is basically a straitjacket. You are tying those little limbs down so that they can't move. As unbelievable as it may sound, many, but not all, babies like it. Perhaps it reminds them of the womb. Anyway, I can personally attest that my angelic neighbor Becca, who gave me a special swaddling blanket when my daughter was born, pretty much saved my life because my daughter could not sleep without it, which means I could not sleep without it. The most famous person to be swaddled is none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 7. But he is not the only one. We have painted or carved depictions of swaddled babies from Crete, 2000 to 2600 BCE, from Greece, 5th century BCE, from China, 2nd to 3rd century CE, from upper class Europe, medieval through 17th, 18th century, From North American native people of multiple tribes across several centuries, I could go on. To the extent that there are written records, they confirm that swaddling is just what you do. Our friend Serranus, the Roman gynecologist from episode 11.1, states it explicitly. One must swaddle the newborn with wool specifically, and he goes into detail about how. For girls, you've got to bind the breasts tightly, but keep the loins loose. Boys, you can just keep it an even tightness all the way around. Oh, and I forgot that you need to salt the baby before doing this. It sounds ever so slightly like rubbing a spice blend on a side of beef, but I think the point was to have a drying agent in there because believe me, things are going to get moist. These swaddling bands are taking the place of cute baby clothes and blankets and diapers. 
Fifteen centuries later, English midwife Jane Sharp still assumed a baby would be swaddled, though she has little in the way of instructions. Basically, she just says, be gentle, for infants are tender twigs, and as you use them, so they will grow, straight or crooked. Exactly when you are going to stop swaddling your baby is a mystery. Instructions range from a few weeks to a few years. I find that last one hard to picture, but that's what it says. But whenever it happens, that's the point at which you need children's clothes, right? Well, not necessarily. If you live in a hospitable climate, the simplest thing to do is leave children in the nude. It's cheaper. It cuts down on laundry, and they can't possibly mistreat their clothes if they haven't got any. We have artistic evidence of that from ancient Egypt and the Olmec in Mesoamerica. Obviously, it doesn't work so well in some other climates. But that still doesn't mean that those peoples would really understand what you meant by children's clothes. For most of history, children's clothes were quite literally smaller versions of adult clothes, whether that be a tunic, a chitin, a kimono, a robe, or a dress. Nothing like the onesie or any other child-specific item existed, so far as we know. Admittedly, what we know is not a lot. Clothing mostly doesn't last that long, archaeologically speaking, and the people most interested in children's clothes, by which I mean the children who wore them and the women who made them, they were mostly illiterate. There's not much in the record. So most of what we have to go on is from art history. Even there we have a problem because, as I discussed in episode 11.1, there just aren't that many artistic depictions of children until the 17th century, and then they were still mostly in Europe. And when they do get going, you just have to feel sorry for those sweet little kids stuffed into the most ridiculously uncomfortable clothes. Like the five-year-old Margarita Teresa, who in Velázquez's 1656 portrait has hips pretty much as wide as her arm span, and by age nine, they are considerably wider than her arm span. Just imagine trying to play jump rope or hopscotch in that dress. There's a picture on the website, herhalfofhistory.com. Or there's the two-year-old Claude Françoise of Lorraine. She's dressed as a nun, or at least it looks like a nun's outfit to me, all black except for the white wimple and a rosary at her belt. It's a little more comfortable looking than Margarita Teresa's, but nothing like as freeing as the thing worn by the Greek bronze running girl. She basically has a sleeveless, knee-length dress. You can't imagine a girl of today in it, except for one thing. It only has one shoulder strap, and the neckline leaves one breast completely exposed. Apparently, she didn't need a sports bra for running. Marguerite Teresa and Claude Francoise were both upper-class girls in their finest, so maybe that's not what they wore every day. The peasant girls in Bruegel the Elder's 1560 painting children's games are not so fancy, but they are still wearing long-sleeved, floor-length dresses with aprons and bonnets. In all of these examples, the clothes are not a clue that these pictures are of children. We see the equivalent clothes on portraits of adults. As discussed in episode 11.2, The Discovery of Childhood, the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries saw a large increase in the number of European parents bothering to get portraits of their children. And to a modern eye, it looks like they did this for their daughters and forgot about their sons. That would be a nice twist on the usual way of the world, but it is not true. It only looks that way because when kids got out of the gender-neutral swaddling clothes, they went straight into the gender-neutral dresses. Yes, dresses for both boys and girls. On the website, you can see two portraits by Dutch painter Paulus Morelse. Both are of toddlers in white dresses. 
Both have very fetching bonnets and gold jewelry and lace. One of them is a girl, one's a boy. My guess is you won't be able to tell which one is which. Little boys wore dresses until somewhere between ages four and seven when they were breached, which meant they were now grown up enough to wear pants, trousers, whatever you want to call them. These were, by now, firmly associated with the male sex. And to hear more on why, you'll have to go all the way, way, way back to episode 1.1, Who Wears the Pants Around Here. Little girls stuck with the dresses for the rest of their lives. But changes were afoot. The same folks who were changing notions of childhood generally also had strong opinions on clothes, especially about swaddling. Despite the fact that it had been done for millennia, Rousseau says bluntly that where children are swaddled, the country swarms with the hunt-backed, the lame, the bow-legged, the rickety, and every kind of deformity. We make our children helpless lest they should hurt themselves. Is not such a cruel bondage certain to affect both health and temper? Their first feeling is one of pain and suffering. Their first treatment, torture. Their voice alone is free. Why should they not raise it in complaint? If you were swaddled, you would cry louder still. No doubt I would cry, but I'm not a baby fresh from the womb. Rousseau, as you can tell, was a master of the mom guilt trip, and I've only quoted a small portion of what he has to say. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, he said all this from the lofty position of never, ever having stayed up all night with a colicky infant, swaddled or not, because he dropped his own children off at an orphanage rather than take the trouble to educate them. But hands-on experience is apparently not necessary for writing a bestseller, and Rousseau was a best-selling writer. So when he said that children should be dressed in loose, flowing frocks which allow freedom of movement, that is exactly what began to happen, starting with the upper classes, who could read Rousseau, and then gradually moving across other classes of society. If you aren't going to swaddle, and you don't live in a climate or a culture conducive to child nudity, then suddenly you need baby clothes. The layette became a European and North American term for what you need to have on hand for your newborn, with the word need being in heavy quotes here since undoubtedly a great many babies did not get all of it. Many women sewed their own layette, but commercially available sets began as early as the 18th century. Even borrowable sets were available for some women because honestly, you're not going to need it for that long. The kids grow fast. In some communities, women passed around a layette box of clothes to whoever was the newest mom at the moment. The exact contents of the layette varied, of course, but there was certainly no need to get the pink version versus the blue version. Even as late as 1927, the Butterick Sewing Pattern Company, which is still in business today, made no distinction between boys and girls when listing the essential components of a layette, which were three dresses, three nightgowns, three petticoats, three bibs, three kimonos, three sacks, three knitted shirts, three knitted bands, three flannel bands, three pairs of booties, 24 diapers, these are cloth diapers, mind you, at 18 by 18 inches, six quilted pads, 11 by 16 inches, one coat, and one cap. Butterick is very, very clear on the fact that the big items are always white. Just white. You are permitted to use pink and blue for booties and blankets, but not for the dresses, caps, coats, etc. White was and had been the standard color for babies for a long time. Sounds like a terrible idea to my spoiled notions of laundry, but the logic then was that white items can be bleached. Butterick does not mention how long those three dresses were, and that is a change from previous times. 
In the preceding centuries, babies who were either just out of swaddling or never swaddled wore very, very long dresses, like even down to the floor as they were being held in the arms of an adult. These long dresses were replaced with short ones when crawling or walking became a possibility. Short coating was something of an event, a milestone to be noted, just as later generations would exclaim over the first tooth or the first word. Baby books of the 1910s still had a space to commemorate the date at which a baby first wore short dresses, but by the 1920s, the long dresses were a thing of the past. Their only real survival is in the form of christening dresses, which are sometimes still quite long. Around the same time, early 1900s, both boys and girls began wearing one-piece rompers, also called creepers or creeping aprons. They are basically the antecedents of today's onesies or bodysuits, the kind with legs, which means that pants were acceptable for baby girls well before dresses for baby boys were out. Also, the rompers weren't generally white, which is how you can tell that synthetic dyes and washing machines have arrived. See episode 7.1. Rompers came in checked gingham, or with animal or floral prints, and they were specifically advocated for girls by a pediatrician as early as 1895 because it would allow them better movement. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. For older girls, we need to jump back a bit. By the 19th century, girls' clothes were distinguished from women's clothing by two things. Partly they were looser. Not always a lot looser, judging by the fashion plates, but some looser. Girls still wore corsets. They just weren't pulled as tight. Boys who had not yet been breached were still wearing the same thing. The other distinguishing feature of girls' clothing from women's was length. Starting in the 1820s, girls were allowed to show their lower leg. Yeah, just kidding. They were allowed to show the stockings or pantalettes that covered the lower leg. There is a beautiful little diagram available on the internet showing how long a Victorian girl's skirts should be. At four years, knee length. It allows movement. At eight years, two inches lower. At ten years, two inches still lower until ankle length at 16. I was disappointed to have my illusions about the origin of this diagram shattered. Supposedly, it's from Harper's Bazaar in 1868. I perused the entire 1868 volume, and there was nary such a diagram, but it did provide plenty of evidence that girls had much shorter skirts than their fashionable mothers. And in thinking about it, it's hard to imagine how a diagram like that could possibly have had much relationship to reality. Girls grow. Clothes do not. Keeping up the precision of that diagram would have been a challenge. Anyway, the older a girl got, the more likely she was to have a full-length dress. 
And another sign that the wee girl is growing up was the doffing of the pinafore. Pinafores were for girls and not for women. Up until this point, most of our evidence is from portraits, which is to say rich children, or fashion plates, which is more aspiration than reality, as any woman larger than a size zero knows. You can well imagine that a great many girls were wearing whatever they could scrimp for. In the 1890s, though, we have a list of recommended wardrobe items for girls ages 12 to 15, leaving orphanages to enter a life of domestic service. Again, this is aspirational, but at least it's aspirational for the poor, instead of aspirational for the rich. A girl who definitely should have been in school but was actually headed out to work crushing hours was recommended to have one black serge dress, one black cashmere dress, two lilac print dresses, four white aprons of yosemite, Google and I don't know what that is, four linen aprons, two hessian aprons, one black jacket, one waterproof cloak, one sailor hat trimmed with ribbons, one large black straw hat trimmed with silk or velvet, two pairs gloves, one umbrella, one silk square for neck, one pair of walking boots, levant and laced, two pairs of house boots, cashmere, six pocket handkerchiefs, six white linen collars, three pairs of linen cuffs, and four caps. Lest you wonder what was going on underneath all that, that's a separate list. Three chemises, three pairs drawers, three calico nightgowns, two red flannel petticoats, two petticoat bodices in gray twill calico, one corset, three pairs black stockings, and one dark serge petticoat. I do really wonder why the flannel petticoats had to be red. However, I can say with certainty that the list itself, aspirational as it is, is proof that the price of cloth had plummeted. I guarantee that the equivalently poor girls of a few centuries earlier did not have such a long list. The urge to have any gender distinction in children's clothes was partly a reaction against a former woman featured on this podcast. Frances Hodgson Burnett is today best known for writing the beautiful book, The Secret Garden. But during her lifetime, she was best known for the sappy and sentimental Little Lord Fauntleroy. Some women dream about the perfect man. Burnett dreamed about the perfect son, and her vision of the boy was all the rage, at least among mothers. The look created in the stage play version was so popular, among mothers, that a whole generation of boys were stuffed into suits of black velvet, wide lace collars, and long, curly locks of luscious hair. Adorable, thought the mothers. Sissified, thought some of the men. Little Lord Fauntleroy was a sensation across both North America and Europe. Then Freud came along and cast mother-son relationships into a whole new light, and suddenly it became very, very important that boys be taught to be manly and heterosexual right from the get-go. Nothing effeminate going on here, thank you very much. If we need fictional role models for boys, they were going to come from the likes of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, not Little Lord Fauntleroy. Basically, our boys need to prove their masculinity. Obviously, change is not overnight, but lace, ruffles, bows, and trims phased out of clothes for boys. Dresses, too, were worn less and less by boys. By the 1940s, it was generally perfectly clear to everyone what gender a two-year-old was, which had definitely not been the case before. But it mostly wasn't the girls' experience that was changing. The gender distinction still wasn't necessarily because of pink. Actually, pink as a word for a color only dates to the 1840s. Before then, pink was just one of many shades of red. And as I've said, most baby clothes were white. 
the trimmings might have color, but the colors had no consistent pattern, except maybe actually about hair. Blondes supposedly looked good in blue. Brown hair went with pink. Gender was irrelevant. In 1918, an article appeared in a Chicago publication that said that the question of gender and color was disputed, but most people thought pink was better for boys because it was a stronger color. Blue was delicate, dainty, and feminine. The local department stores agreed, but it seemed to be a regional thing. In Manhattan and Los Angeles, the color preference was reversed, and that was just the U.S. Throughout the world, many other customs prevailed. There is no clear timeline or reason for why the Manhattan opinion prevailed over the Chicago one in the United States. It was just a gradual increase of pink for girls, blue for boys, over decades. Right up until the 1960s when we suddenly didn't want to emphasize gender after all. The unisex era runs from 1965 to 1985. Feminists were loudly rejecting pink for their daughters, which shows you just how far the culture had traveled in only a few short decades. Ironically, it was the feminists themselves who linked pink so strongly with girls. It had never been fully cemented before they began arguing against it. Dark and contrasting colors were preferred to pastels, and in the mid-1970s, Sears Roebuck catalog did not even sell any pink clothes for toddlers. Interestingly, unisex clothing in the 70s meant girls could wear traditionally boys' clothes, whether they be blue, brown, or bifurcated. What it did not mean was that boys could wear girls' clothes. The pink, the lace, the ruffles, nah, they weren't coming back for boys. It was not until the 1980s that pink came back with a vengeance, its gender associations firmly entrenched. But what about all those rabid gender-equal child-raising feminists? Didn't they complain? Well, yes, they did, but there are several theories about why their complaints no longer mattered. Possibly the clothing choices of the 70s were always more about a fleeting fashion preference than a hardcore principle, and maybe the feminists had never been as successful as they gave themselves credit for. Or maybe they had succeeded in stressing women's equality so well that parents no longer thought pink was a barrier to their daughter's equal access to opportunity. Or maybe the girls themselves wanted pink and finally made their preferences clear. Maybe all of the above. By the early 2000s, pink was so ubiquitous for girls' clothes that it was hard to find things even in colors like purple or turquoise, which in the 80s and 90s were definitely girls' colors. In the 2000s, there has been some small reclaiming of pink by boys and men. But if the Barbie movie is anything to go by, the association with girls and women is still very, very strong, and it seems unlikely to change. Meanwhile, girls are still allowed to wear boys' clothes. It's the boys who seem limited by the need to emphasize their masculinity. I have a few final clothing-related dates for you to ponder because clothes are far more scientific and technical than you probably appreciate. Disposable diapers were not invented until the mid-20th century, so before that, cloth ones. But even the safety pin wasn't invented until 1849. Before that, ties or straight pins. Ouch. Snaps weren't invented until the late 1800s. Elastic was not common until around 1900. Zippers, not until the 1930s. Velcro, not until well after the 1950s. Even buttons, which don't seem all that high-tech, were not common until well into the medieval period. 
Waterproofing for your outer layers was available for centuries as long as you happened to be an Amazonian with your tribe's own rubber trees. For everyone else, that wasn't an option until mid to late to really, really late 19th century. None of this is unique to girls, of course, nor even to children, but imagine how very much more complicated it was for a girl to dress herself without these things. Imagine dressing yourself without these things. Just something to think about. I have a lot of sources today, but the most readable for you is Joby Pauletti's Pink and Blue, Telling the Boys from the Girls in America. If you visit my website, herhalfofhistory.com, you can find pictures of all the clothes you are so glad you are not wearing, and a transcript and links to show your support on Patreon, or Into History, or Buy Me a Coffee. I have a big thank you today to Sue, who not only signed up as a Patreon supporter, but also sent me the loveliest note. I also have a thank you for Kelly Chase, who wrote me a tactful and gentle email about episode 11.5 to let me know that the term Australian Aborigine is no longer the acceptable terminology. They should be called Aboriginal people or Indigenous people or First Nations people. One thing I have noted before is that when you pore over historical books, you are often, by definition, reading something old, and they don't always use the currently correct terms. No offense was intended, and I have updated that episode. And by the way, Kelly has a podcast, History Detective, and a brand new book, History, Her Story, Our Story, which is fabulous. You should check it out. Links in the show notes. Next week, we get to the very best part of girlhood, according to me, the books. It's the development of children's literature. Don't miss it. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.